Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. I first heard of today's guest speak at a conference around 2017, and despite her relative youth, I could see her poise, passion and power all in play. She's a real change maker and so much more. Holly Ransom is a globally renowned content curator, powerful speaker and master questioner with the belief that if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. She's been named one of Australia's 100 most influential women by the AFR. She's delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama, was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's Smart List of Future Game Changers to Watch and was awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence in 2019. Having interviewed the likes of Barack Obama, Richard Branson, Billie Jean King, Condoleezza Rice and the world's first humanoid robot, Sophia, Holly fights complexity with curiosity, apathy and the empowerment and fear with fact. She is a Fulbright Scholar and Harvard Kennedy School Class of 21 Fellow. She's also a recipient of the prestigious Anne Wexler Public Policy Scholarship. Holly has compressed a power-packed career into just a decade, spanning corporate, not-for-profit, public sectors, and she's the founder and CEO of consulting firm Emergent. She's also led real-world results with clients such as P&G, Microsoft, Virgin, Cisco, and KPMG. As a proud champion for diversity and inclusion, Holly is chair of Pride Cup Australia, a not-for-profit organisation and movement devoted to challenging LGBTI plus discrimination with sporting clubs and making them welcoming and supportive environments for participants and fans. A two-time Iron Woman, Holly loves to cook, dance and sing, and she says despite her complete lack of talent at all three, she loves it. In her recently <laughs> launched book, The Leading Edge, Holly brings real-world leadership lessons that so many diverse thinkers and pioneers that she's met at, are at the fore of and she's had the opportunity to work with. So I'm really excited to have her on, and she also has a fantastic podcast called Coffee Pods, and it was named one of the top 10 business podcasts to listen to by the City Morning Herald in 2018. So Without further ado, welcome to the politics of everything, Holly. Thank you so much, Emma, and thank you for a very generous introduction. Oh, you've done so much. I'm just exhausted reading that. It's incredible. <laughs> I wonder what the next day it's going to hold. I know, but, you know, I've got a few more years on you, so I always think it's amazing when, when you know, people of relative youth, as I put it, can pack so much in. And I'm curious to know, um, young Holly, what did you want to be when you grow up and did you actually achieve any of that? Oh, I think I was like every kid where depending on what day of the week or what given year you asked me, it changed and varied quite significantly. The only one I can quite vividly remember was in year three, so eight years old. I, in my scrapbook, I've, I've written down that I wanted to be the Brownlow medalist. So at that point in time, there was no view that my AFL career had any limitations. Two years later, I was going to be promptly quicked out, kicked out of the team because um, girls weren't allowed to play anymore. But at that point in time, I had no idea that that was a problem. Uh, so that was the early aspiration. I think I went through the 
compulsory, what I feel like is the compulsory uh, marine biologist stage. I feel like everybody oh, yes. goes through that. Yep. Um, there was a period where I wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, honestly, I think it, it was many and varied. So yeah, I, I've never really had a strong sense. I wasn't one of those those young people and I admire those that are that sort of had this clear conviction that they wanted to be a, a doctor or they wanted to be an entrepreneur building a you know tech business or whatever it was from a very young age. It sort of took a lot longer for me to, to work out what I wanted to do. And I think more broadly, actually, to probably just get comfortable with this idea that I had a very strong sense of direction in terms of the purpose that I wanted to pursue in my life. But the idea that actually the approach, the how, would, it would have a looser hold on the reins. There were going to be a lot of different ways that I would be in any given moment trying to make an impact on the, the area I'm passionate about. So your latest book is based on the idea that leadership is within everyone's reach. And I guess the idea that, you know, some people I think naturally are born leaders. I would definitely say that even perhaps back in those school days, there's probably people that you can still remember that, you know, were always the public speakers and the leaders and the people everyone listened to. Can you can you think of a way in which that can be true for, for everybody? Because I suppose we sometimes, you know, with the, with the reality is equality is not open to everyone at all times. So how can those opportunities to lead really come to the fore for people in your in your experience? Yeah, so many interesting elements to the question that you asked there, um, because you're absolutely right that, you know, the opportunity is so unequally distributed. And one of the things that I've become, actually one of the main motivations behind writing this book to begin with was an attempt to rewrite an incredibly monodimensional narrative around what a leader is and looks like. Um, because when you go and do the lit review on leadership, as I spent some time doing, you find that it is overwhelmingly told from a male perspective. It is overwhelmingly the story of male leaders, more often than not from very particular disciplines. You know, they are military generals, they are elite sporting coaches, or they are Jack Welsh-esque CEOs, maybe a few of the Silicon Valley bros in more recent years. But there's a real lack of diversity in the stories of leadership. And I think that's part of the problem to begin with. Amber, the question there is, if we're not painting a more diverse narrative around what leadership looks like and who can be a leader, it's unsurprising that so many people think that, okay, that's not something that's open to me. That's not something I've been born with the capability for. That's not something that can sit on my goal list as a part of how I want to make a contribution to this world. And I think that that's really problematic. Because certainly the the challenges that are ahead of us now need a far more diverse set of people pursuing an array of different responses to them. Let's think about climate change as just one example. There is no way that just that model of leadership as the story has been written is in any way proving uh, capable of finding a solution to that challenge in front of us now. And we need community leaders. We need mayors of cities. We need leaders of companies. We need leaders of countries. We need you and me making decisions at a household level. You name it, that's going to make be the change there. So I think you're absolutely right in that. I think part of the problem is the stories and the fact that a lot of people have never been told a story of leadership that says they can be a leader. We've got a big job to do in correcting that. Yeah. The second thing, to your point, is we need to democratise access to the, the, the tools and skills because so often this stuff is behind a paywall or a network wall. You know, the access to this, if you didn't go to the right school or you're not at the right company that invests in this sort of stuff or you don't have access and the opportunity to be able to attend the conferences, the seminars, what have you, you're right. More often than not, these sorts of 
these school skills and capabilities haven't been able to be put in your hands, haven't been able to be put in front of you in a way that you can pick them up and run with them and think about the application for your world. So part of what I'm passionate about off the back of writing the book is actually helping develop those tools and thinking about how we scale them, um, because I absolutely believe we need to democratise access to leadership development far more effectively than we've done to date if we're going to make real progress in the next generation. Yeah, definitely need to make it all a little bit less opaque, I think, for most of us who don't play in those, in those worlds that you've described. Your manifesto is about three principles, mindset, method and mastery, and you say that we can first lead ourselves and then others. And obviously you've had a really phenomenal and perhaps rare opportunity to interview some of the world's most well-known leaders such as Condoleezza Rice, Barack Obama and Malcolm Gladwell. How have their different change-making agendas influenced your own personal views or what makes someone a great leader and have that leading edge? Yeah, great question. And I think it's interesting when you go and meet people from such different walks of life, both to look at the difference and and part of what I think is beautiful in celebrating leadership is the many different shapes, sizes, forms it can take and the importance of celebrating each and every one of those contributions. But the other thing that's always really interesting is the patterns that emerge. So what amongst all these people that have applied themselves in really different ways, obviously have very different reasons they believe they're on the planet and things that they're trying to do, what is it amongst them that is is common and are there any lessons that we can perhaps pick up and learn from that? And I think there are a couple when it comes to figures like the ones you've just mentioned, Barack Obama and you know Malcolm Gladwell, Richard Branson, people like that. One is that there's such a clear sense of purpose with every one of them. When you meet them, you're in absolutely no scary of a doubt as to what they believe in and what their why is. And there's something incredibly powerful about that sense of clarity on purpose. So it really strikes you that they've obviously done the work to get clear on what they believe in and what they believe is the contribution they're here to make. But I think the second thing that, that comes off the back of that probably is with that clarity comes a real sense of groundedness. You know, whenever you're stepping into leadership in any way, shape or form, whether it's thought leadership, whether it's active leadership of an organisation or a community group, you name it, we, we're sort of naturally stepping into the arena where there's counter opinion and alternative views and different ways of doing things and, you know, people who don't like change who are going to put the noses out of join of. And so there's something really important, I think, around the grounded strength that comes with that clarity of conviction that those leaders have about what they're trying to do. And I think the third thing is what's common amongst all of them is they are 100% doing things differently. I mean, the definition of insanity is sort of thinking that we can keep doing the, the same thing, get a different result. But these people that are prepared to stick their neck out, go a different way, march to the beat of a different drum, try and rally or build a new movement, business, you name it. Um, there's something for, definitely about this idea that they've been prepared to be courageous and to keep choosing that next brave thing despite opposition, despite setback, you name it. So I think that that's probably the commonality of what I've observed amongst the, that incredible group of leaders I've been lucky enough to interview. Yeah, fantastic. So how do you think positive and lasting change can be achieved quicker? Because I think we need it to happen quicker. We can't wait, what is it, another 120 years until women's pay is equal yeah, and I, I guess know, there's right? enough women in parliament that, you know, all those things. How can it be done quicker? But also, does it always come with sacrifices for those who are making that change and bulldozing through, if you like, or are impacted by it? I mean, how do you navigate those two things so the duality results in something great? Yeah, two two really powerful arms to that question. I'll take the, the first one first, which is that idea of how do we do it faster. 
I think one of the premises I've tried to poke, provoke a little bit in the book is this idea that part of it comes with each and every one of us stepping into the arena in our own way and taking responsibility for the collective outcome. I think there's a little bit, and I actually think it's a problem of the way that we've told the story about leadership and also this age of kind of noise and saturation and hyper network scale, et cetera, is I think it's really easy for people to think, oh, if I'm not, you know, running a country, if I'm not leading, you know, a a giant multinational organisation, then I can't really have a dent on these sorts of issues. I can't, you know, what I'm doing day to day doesn't make a difference. And I think that's a really problematic narrative that stops us getting a lot more momentum, whether that's just in the compounding of kind of voice and activism, or whether that's actually in the different contribution that each and every one of those people putting into motion, you know, making their their place of work carbon neutral, thinking actively about, you know, the footprint of how their organisation contributes from an ESG standpoint, role modelling, different behaviour for the next generation, whatever way we want to cut that. So I think one thing is each and every one of us challenging ourselves with the question, if I was to start where I am with what I have right now and to be the change I want to see in the world, what does that mean I do differently tomorrow? And how do I start doing that? And how do I start role modelling for that in a way that will ripple out through my network, friends, family, et cetera, and build greater momentum because we've all got a responsibility to be the change that we want to see. I think the second thing that comes with that is just that preparedness and it kind of goes hand in hand with that idea of starting from where you are but that idea of being prepared to experiment and try a little bit more. One of the ideas I talk about in the book is this notion of, of starting before we're ready and I think one of the big challenges that we often find when it talks about doing anything new is that risk aversion that we can approach doing things differently with and the idea that we, we're kind of waiting for everything to be ready and perfect. And I think to your point, Eva, that we don't have the luxury of that. We can't afford to wait. I mean, look at the IPCC report that came out this week. Exactly. Um, dire, I know. I picture stuff. being painted, yeah. right? And if not now, when? I mean, that's the thing. That for climate change amongst a whole bunch of other things. And I think it's, I guess the challenge is, and I, I'll probably just, you know, heading heading towards 50 in a few years, I've seen lots of things come and go, I suppose, over my time. And the reality is, you know, we have less women, for example, in Parliament, which is something I'm very passionate about, than we did during the peak of, say, the John Howard era, which would have been ultra conservative in some ways. Mm. So those sorts of things make me think, gosh, how do you make it stick? How do you get the stickiness so that people go this is this is the new normal and we are going to never go back as well I think that's one of the challenges I face in the thinking around this definitely and and to your second point of your earlier question is the idea of sacrifice one of the things that really challenged me in the book was a couple of leaders I met who were telling stories of really significant transformation and one of them that that might be relevant to what we were just talking about there in terms of women in leadership was speaking with Kath Tanner who has just recently left Energy Australia but has been the the longtime CEO there and the reason I wanted to interview Kath was because I knew she'd taken their organisation on a journey of, of pay equality. So uh, a couple of years after coming into being CEO there, and, and she reflects in, in the way that she tells the story, like, I don't know why it took me two or three years of signing a workplace gender equality report that sort of signed off on our pay gap to actually pause and ask the question, hold on, why do we have a pay gap? And what would it cost us to fix it? And she said, what was, she said, I don't know for life of me why it took me a few years. But when I asked the question, it was interesting that nobody knew the answer. And I said, well, can we find that out? And when they came back, you know, there was a figure of about $1.2 million that was needed to close this gap. And there was about 80 people, including a 
uh, a score of men that needed to have their pay adjusted in order to achieve pay equality in the organisation. Now, that's making uh, a bit of a quick synopsis of a, a power of work that went into grading jobs right and really getting an accurate data picture on that within their organisation. As she said, don't get me wrong, there's money involved in fixing these problems, but every single person involved in this process was so surprised that it wasn't more. And so sometimes I think part of it is we're not, A, necessarily sure the problem that we're solving or how big the problem is. And the second thing is, and this is is one of the things she sort of has, um, I guess, reflected on since the Energy Australia journey, you know, she put it in the board pack, called the chair of the board to give him a heads up that this was coming before the board. And she said, when, you know, the media would call me and ask all these questions about this, they'd, they'd say, tell me about the blood that was spilt on the boardroom floor and what did you have to give up to get this over the line? So when I called my chairman, he said, oh, about time, we should have done this years ago. Great. And she said, you know, nobody yeah. wanted to report that story. And she said, part no. of why I wonder if we don't start on some of these change initiatives is because that's how hard we've built the narrative up to be. And it's unsurprising if we've made it look that difficult to get out of the starting blocks that it takes a very resilient few or it's only a very resilient few that actually end up having a go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's very true and that, that's a great example. How do you think we can become more confident in the changes we decide to, to make or that happen to us? I think sometimes when you're the agent of change and you want something, yes, you know there's sacrifices, but you're sort of in control, but sometimes things just happen to us like a global pandemic or, you know, you get made redundant from a job that you love or you find that the way you thought your life would turn out hasn't and there's some personal setbacks. Is there any sort of way in which you think we can sort of armour ourselves better to be more confident and keep going? Yeah, it's a really great question, a really timely stage to be asking that question out too because I think so many of us are grappling with that idea of, of change that's forced upon us. I think there there are two things that came out as really clear themes around that, actually maybe three within the book. One was the idea of focusing on your locus of control. So it's really easy to lose over energy and thinking to what's beyond your your reach and beyond your, your capability in that we can spend forever absorbing information. We're all epidemiologists now, aren't we, in terms of the up and down of, of the pandemic yeah, and the like. Absolutely. Um, and actually bringing that spirit in and going, okay, I can't control what day we're going to come out of lockdown. I can't control how quickly this country gets vaccinated. But what I can try and control is, and whether that's thinking about the way you're taking care of your mental health, whether that's thinking about the way that you're structuring your work, whether that's thinking about, you know, the, the skill that you might be by using this forced downtime to build or the way that you might be intentionally reaching out and building deeper relationships with people that you maybe haven't had the time and space to do that with. I think in some way bringing your focus in to what's within your control because it, it just feels so helpless whenever we're trying to move the dial. All, all our wishing and willing isn't going to make the rest of the world or the, the macro circumstances around us shift anytime soon. So I think that's one big thing. And, and what can you intentionally put your focus into that gives you a sense of control at a time where it's easy to feel out of control? So I think that's that's one part of it. The second part is there's a lot of science and it's something I've become a personally a big proponent of too, which is this idea of managing energy and not time. And this powerful piece around the importance, you know, and I think probably we've we've never been more mindful of our own energy than when we've been forced into first out of our routine and into an entirely new routine or some semblance of uh, having to find one in the last 12, 18 months. But that notion of how do you, from an actually restorative well-being standpoint, be doing things that you know put you in the best energy state to be able to 
cope, to be able to respond, to be able to continue to make decisions from a place of strength versus a place of, of kind of sacrifice or limitation, which which is very easy to do when we feel a little bit out of control. So yeah. Uh, it, do you have an example of that? Is that things like sleep and routine or is it sort of something a little bit more nuanced than that? Yeah. So I think, so one of the things I recommend to people is doing like an energy audit. And so paying attention to what it is in your, what first two things, stages of the day where you're naturally more energized and then thinking about how you match those moments of high energy to activity. So how do you make sure that in those higher energy states, you're putting them to work on creative projects or, you know, engaging with stakeholders that are a really important relationships for you to be building or, doing your business development work versus sitting there on email or reconciling your expenses or something like that that's that certainly doesn't deserve the best of your energy. The second thing is thinking about what you know energizes you and what you know drains you and being really intentional in the way that you structure a day and week of making sure that that stuff goes in first and foremost. So you're right, it could be for some people it's it's mindfulness, it's it's yoga or it's meditation. For others it's getting out for a walk or going for a run. For some people it's journaling or it's dancing around and singing and listening to music. Whatever that might be for you, making that a non-negotiable that's in the day versus something that's slotting in at the end if you've still got time. And the encouraging thing for those listening who are like, yeah, great, that sounds like a, a perfect utopia I really don't have the bandwidth. I hear you on that. And one of the things I actually found most encouraging about the research in this space is this whole new world of micro breaks that scientists are becoming increasingly interested in, which is this idea of to be meaningful, it doesn't have to be half an hour, 60 minutes. Part of the problem I think often is we're searching for these big chunks of time, which is a bit like the search for the the silver bullet that never really arrives, yeah, right? waiting for it to all the stars to align and 100%. then I'll sign up for that Pilates class. Yeah, whereas it's what never gonna happen. research is saying is actually it's as simple as getting up between your Zoom meetings and doing jumping jacks on the spot or squats or sitting down and doing 10 deep breaths. You can actually start to see a physiological change with that small an intervention. So finding ways of actually putting these small circuit breakers in I think can be really powerful through the process of actually helping you energetically um, respond to change. And the, the third thing I'll say on the change piece is I think it's a, a, a big part to do with the story that we tell ourselves. One of the big things of positive psychology is this notion of explanatory styles. So the way that we explain the goings on around us to ourselves in order to make meaning, because as humans, we have to make meaning of everything that's going on around us. So being able to catch our unconscious narrative, you know, we might be telling ourselves like things like I'm out of control. I'm just, I'm so exhausted. This is, this is not working. I'm a failure, you know, all those sorts of language that will ultimately have a very profound impact on the way that we're responding, on the way that we're putting ourselves out there, you know, and ultimately on our mental health state and our level of confidence to, to your question, Amber. And so I think the idea of thinking about how do we interrupt ourselves and go the story I am telling myself is and the story I'm going to tell myself is and that idea of growth mindset language. Okay, I didn't get that job, but I've learned lessons. I can go again and opportunities around the corner. That might not have worked, but I am absolutely capable and determined to go again. And just thinking about how we can move from a narrative that doesn't serve us being able to respond to change to one that helps us be more resilient and more able to go again. I think that's another uh, tool that you see a lot of leaders deploying and a lot of work in psychology suggesting that it can be really valuable to leaders who are feeling stretched and, and strained and challenged by the crisis at the moment. 
of course, and I think we could all use a bit of that magic dust at the moment. Um, look, you've been working with and learning from, you know, as we've mentioned, heads of countries, companies and charities that sort of work in, in big spaces in many ways. You help them disrupt what they do. And obviously, you've got a really big emphasis on changing the world for the better in your own personal ethos. How have you really carved your own path and tinkered around the edges as you went to define what you think is a meaningful and satisfying work life? Oof, good question. I think it's it's a really interesting process to continually calibrate with yourself. And I think that is one of the things that I've learned, this idea. I think when I was younger, I used to think a lot of this stuff was more static, you know, that people had a plan for how it was going to play out. Well, it took me hundreds of conversations with leaders, asking them about the plan they had, only to be told a hundred times that there was never a plan for what had played out, for me to ditch the idea that there was ever a static plan. And actually things needed to be much more fluid. You know, this idea of of goal setting or, you know, aiming at destinations with the idea that you could be flexible and fluid. But I think one of the things that for me remains kind of these anchor activities is certainly that idea of connecting into your why and what your purpose is and trying to to frame that for yourself in a way that really energizes you and then making sure that that's somewhere you sort of see every day and you're reading and you're connecting with and you've got the ability to, to sort of anchor to. I think that's really, really powerful. I think the second thing, and this is an activity I sort of do, I often do it at the end of the calendar year. So I'll spend sort of the end of December doing a reflection on the year that was and then spending some time thinking about the goals that I want to take forward, you know, for the year ahead. And in line of that, one of the things that I do every year is sort of reset my my values according to what it is that's really important to me in the how I'm living out my why. So thinking really intentionally about what habits and traits do I want to be bringing into the way that I work this year in order to be the best version of myself in order to achieve my goals. Now, I think the third bit is that idea of, okay, if that's the purpose that I'm aiming at, how is it that I'm pursuing this within any particular period of time so that can be things like you know 12 month goals or you know people are even working on shorter timelines than that right now particularly in the sea of the pandemic it's hard to plan 12 months out so this month what am I doing in order to pursue what it is that I'm trying to make an impact on so I think for me it's become about a discipline of activities or reflective exercises and then probably the other thing is just the importance of the people that you surround yourself with who can who can serve as sounding boards for those sorts of thought processes, whether they're people that you admire and, you know, want to emulate different aspects of their career or you really respect how they've navigated their own leadership journey. And so you, you sort of want to, I guess, learn from them and have the opportunity to think through how lessons they've learned might apply to your world or whether it's people that are actually actively more even, you know, giving you feedback on your goals, helping you think about the plan for how you might achieve them. I think the other part of it is that that importance of the tribe that you build around yourself and actively inviting them into the process of challenging you constructively on the way that you're aiming, thinking about how they can help support you or think about next steps or new directions, all that sort of thing. So they're part of some of the activities that I think have become a real discipline in my life in pursuit of sort of having an impact. Absolutely. So what has been the hardest change that you've ever made? And I guess, what did that teach you? Good question. You know, I think more often than not, and I I don't know if this resonates with you, Amber, but I actually think it's more often the really personal things that are the most challenging. You know, uh, I think about times where I have left relationships that were not good for me. And I was terrified that there may not be another one around the corner, but it was this belief of, this is 
this is not okay, I'm not, I've lost myself in this and I need to step out of this and find myself again. So that that's probably one of the hardest changes I've ever made. I'm so grateful I made it. I wouldn't have the life that I have now if I hadn't made that uh, choice, you know, years ago now. But I think they're sometimes the hardest ones that we make is that preparedness actually to set boundaries. And there's this great line that Glennon Doyle talks about. Some of you might have read her book, Untamed, where she says, you know, it's not the the, the hatred of or the, the vicious lines of the, the the online haters that that scares us most. It's actually the quiet concern of those that love us that most shakes us from our knowing. And I think there's something really Absolutely interesting agree in with that. that. You know, like yeah. just that that feedback, that fear of losing face, the when identity is involved, when sense of self and when I think our our hearts are involved, I think they're often the most challenging change processes. And so, you know, like picking yourself up and and starting again sometimes from those circumstances I think is is often the hardest and it's probably been the example for me. Yeah, it always reminds me of um, it's a saying which um, when I was doing elite sport many years ago, we used to say no pressure, no diamonds. So you've got to go <laughs> yeah. through the hard stuff to get to get the magic and get the beautiful diamond at the end. But often when you're going through it, it doesn't feel like that at all. So um, oh, yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. we all relate to that. So who have been your greatest mentors? I suppose you've had quite a few in, in your career and I guess the one or two that stand out, how have they made an impact in your life and your career? Yeah, great question. And it's interesting for many listening, they, they might have an interesting association with that word because I think I was engaging with mentors long before I knew what that word is. And then one of the things I found really interesting about starting to use that word is sort of the baggage that comes with it. You know, when I mentioned one of the things that used to astound me when I was speaking many years ago is I used to talk about mentors quite a bit and I'd, I'd say to people, hands up if you've got a mentor. And I was always surprised by less than 10% of the room sort of putting their hands up. And I thought, wow, you know, this has just been such a huge part of my personal and professional development. I'm so surprised so few people are leaning on this. But then you realise that this word often, you know, connotates with a level of formality, like oh, I'm not in a formal mentoring program with a mentor or, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think of mentors as bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And no, even people who, that. you know, had that one bad experience that time, their company automatically set them up with someone who was meant to be their mentor and, you know, that wasn't a very good fit so they never tried again. And the thing I always say to people is I encourage people to start that process again if it's something they have disconnected with. I think all of us can benefit from mentoring. I think all of us should be actively mentoring and being a mentee for that matter. So that duality of who are you mentoring for and who are you being mentored by. And I think uh, when I think about some of my most powerful ones, I'm oh, sorry, I should just finish that thought that I encourage those listening to think about going and, and seeking learning conversations take away the barrier of the formality or this idea that it has to have a structure built into it or you have to know going into it how you're going to set up this rhythm with this person. Actually go and seek a conversation, a one-off with someone you believe you could learn from. Be clear about your reason why you want their time and why they're the person to help you nut your, nut, nut your way through the problem that's in front of you. And then in that conversation, I think if it's one where there's clearly a dynamic where you've scratched the surface of what you could learn from them, you really feel like there's so much more to explore and there's the right dynamic between you and that person, that's the opportunity to say, hey, would it be possible? I've really benefited from the conversation today. When I've applied some of the things we've talked about today, if I came back with some more questions. And I think that sort of takes the, the barrier to entry into mentoring right the way down so it's something all of us can, can access. When it comes to my most influential, I mean, there's so many people I can put in this category. I think the one before I knew what the word was, was definitely grandma. She's been my sort of most extraordinary leadership role model in the way that she 
just does not walk past things that are unacceptable. And also this incredible ability that she has, doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the the mayor, whether you're the person working on on the checkout, whether you're the the librarian, you name it. Grandma is so good at making you feel as though you are the most important person on the planet and the world is so lucky you are here and is so lucky that you are doing what you're doing. And I, I've always thought what what an extraordinary gift to be able to give everyone you interact with that they leave an interaction with you feeling taller. I think that's an incredible leadership gift that my grandma gives to everyone she interacts with. So that, that would definitely be probably the the one before I knew it. Yeah, oh, I know. She's yeah, my grandmother had a big impact on my life too. So that's um yeah, that's always very special to hear. Bit of fun now. A favorite book, song or film and what is it and why? Okay, let me think about that. So many ways I could go with books. Can be serious, can be quirky. Um, I'm a constant jukebox. <laughs> I sing all around the house all the time with absolutely no talent. So there's not actually a song that I go back to all the time. I think it's more that whatever. I am often quite good at taking a word from whatever I'm hearing and then just starting to riff on whatever song I can remember it's in the lyric of. So there's no method or madness to that in particular. <laughs> I think when it comes to favourite book, it would probably, as it, as it does for so many of us, go back to that first one when we were younger that really had an impact, which for me, was probably reading To Kill a Mockingbird as a 13-year-old at school and just so many of the ideas, you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes and, and just the principles and the values in that book that I think really impacted me. So probably probably give a nod to that one, I think. Fantastic. I love that book too. Finally, a takeaway message for us on the politics of change. Ooh. So many different ways you could take the politics of change. I think we need to. I know. Just something take out, I guess, a lasting thought so people moving forward know exactly what, you know, what's something they could do today even that would make that change start. Yeah, awesome. Well, I think one of the things that I, I sort of wrote the book for is I think the the politics aren't going to change anytime soon. And so versus waiting for leadership to come out of Canberra or to come out of wherever your public leaders might be residing, I think it's really important that we each challenge ourselves with what we talked about earlier, that notion of if you could start from where you are today and take one small step towards being the change that you want to see in the world, what would that be? And to ground that even further, one of the activities I talk about in the book that I encourage everyone to have a go at is if you've got a business card in front of you or you can mock up this on your LinkedIn for those who business cards are a little bit old school for, take whatever your job title is written as and just put a line through it and write chief role model instead. And if you were being the chief role model of the change you want to see in the world, what are you going to change about the way that you show up later today, tomorrow, you name it. Think about who you're being a role model for. Could be family, could be your colleagues, could be your community, you name it. You define that world. But if you're going to be chief role model of the change you want to see in the world, what does that mean you're doing differently? And take that one step towards bringing that to life. That's really powerful. It has been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today, Holly. I have learned so much and I've really enjoyed our conversation. If you do want to connect further with Holly, there will be some details on the show notes as always. Take care. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.